Well, Summit, how are we today? Good. I feel like it wouldn't be a, a sermon from this stage if I didn't start that way, right? Or all right. Isn't that what Brian normally does? No? Okay. I'm just trying to be like Brian. So good to be here with you guys today. As Brian said, uh, my name is Derek. I'm the new pastoral resident here. And it really is um, surreal for me to be here with you right now. Uh, I'm really thankful to be here um, So for deeper reasons. But also, I was in Tennessee last night uh, doing a wedding, and there was one flight back. And so praise be to God that I'm here. Um, and so I know Brian was texting me all nervous, like I could feel his nerves coming through in a text. And so, so my body is tired, but my soul really is full uh, to be with you today. And it's real, and I'm thankful to be here for another reason. Uh, too. And as Brian was kind of sharing some of our relationship and our story uh, together, is for me to be in Denver, Colorado to begin this journey of planting churches, but also to be here as a part of this community is such a sweet gift uh, to me and my family and our team. And so we got here three months ago, and we've been a part of the Summit family for those three months. Um, But like Brian said, our, our journey's been with the Summit for over five years. And so, yeah, to be a partner church, here's the the beauty about this. There's two things I'm thankful for our time here and what I'm just so eager to share uh, with you. First is like the summit embodies so much of the dream of what God has put down in our heart, of what we want to see happen over and over again in this city. And so we're on the same team, and so many of the things that God has done here over the last seven or eight years uh, is what we're praying by faith that God would do through the church that will be sent out from you all uh, here in just a few months uh, to see planted. Uh, so I'm just thankful to observe and to be part of this community to learn from you all. So thank you for your kindness and your generosity toward us over the last several weeks. Uh, but also, uh, it, it, I'm thankful for it because, and this is not just preacher speak, okay? Um, because I have prayed for you. So we were talking about that, those partner churches and that being a supporting church. So part of that, what that meant was we were hearing stories about the summit. I actually led a team out here four or five years ago uh, when summit was just a couple of years in. Um, and so as a church family in the middle of East Tennessee is where we're hailing from. So are you proud of me that I wore shoes and I have all my teeth and all of that? Okay, I am from East Tennessee. Um, or whatever other stereotypes. But I know where some of you guys came from too, so get off of me, okay? Um, but over in East Tennessee, um, praying that as the gospel goes forward through this community on mission, that lives would be changed. And what I've seen with my own eyes and heard, getting to know some of your stories, is that how God has used the Summit Church to introduce you to Jesus and to absolutely change your life. And what I'm seeing is faces of prayers that we've been praying for years. Um, and so it's more than just a time that we're going to hear to go do something else. Like We really do feel like we're coming home. Uh, that we're here. So thank you for letting uh, me share uh, God's word with you. And so since you're stuck with me for um, a year or so, I figure you should know a little bit about my family. Uh, But we're not here to talk about Derek. We're here to talk about Jesus. But uh, my family's great. Uh, I should have done a picture if I really love my family. Sorry, maybe (laughs) next time. Um, But while my life is awesome, we've been together a decade um, and married for six of those 10 years. Somebody give that girl a medal for putting up with me for that long. And we have uh, two kids. One's name's Bo, and he's a two-year-old mini-me, but he's like the cute version of me. So we're hoping it doesn't like devolve down when uh, he gets a few decades down the road. Uh, Bo's awesome. He's upstairs wreaking havoc uh, now, I think. Um, And then we have a little girl who does not have a name, and that's not because we're terrible parents. It's because she's still cooking in mama's belly. Uh, So we have a little sweet girl making her debut uh, the end of July. And so why not 
have a baby while we're trying to plant a church, right? Uh, that's one way of growing a church, that way. So, uh, so that's, that's our family, uh, and we're really thankful to be here. Uh, we also come with um, several families that have moved with us, some from East Tennessee, some from Louisville, Kentucky, some from New Orleans. We have three families that are here now that are part of this fellowship, uh, and then there will be three more making their way out uh, this summer. And so I'm just uh, grateful to be here. A little background, the decade, uh, I've done a lot of things vocationally, but most I've served as a pastor uh, at Tri-Cities Baptist Church, where Brian was mentioning earlier. Uh, that was the church that my wife grew up in, and that in many ways introduced me to what it means to follow Jesus. That I, my first exposure to the gospel was fairly late in my childhood. Uh, my cousin was tragically killed by a drunk driver, um, and up to that point had never heard the gospel um, grew up in an abusive, um, lower-income family, just never had been exposed to the things of God. And that kind of stirred up some of the big questions in my parents. Um, so we stumbled into church that next Sunday. And um, it was a church that I'm thankful for in many ways, but in many ways it's very unhealthy. But what God in His kindness did in that season was plant seeds of the gospel that really produced faith in me, albeit pretty um, lacking, and it was pretty uh, artificial in a lot of ways. And it was later in life that um, the gospel really began to take root in me later in college because I took a season of deep doubt, uh, deep depression, rebelled against the church uh, for a lot of reasons. Some of those were cognitive doubts that I had about the existence of God, but most of that had experienced from the brokenness of the church. Um, just saw the church implode. My dad had uh, cheated on my mom and ended up leaving. Um, so there was just a season of my life that I was just really angry and really searching uh, and was very outwardly rebellious. And God in his kindness brought me back to himself um, when I was around 19 years old or so. And that's the same time I met my wife, and that's what brought me to the church that I discerned a calling to ministry. And that was not on my agenda, was to be a pastor. Um, coming out of that season of skepticism, and then God in his kindness or sense of humor, maybe both, calling me to do what I'm doing uh, today. But I'm doing it because I'm convinced that Jesus is worth it. And that this is true. This is true. What we're talking about today is true. We had, I came to that realization that God called me to want to give my life to seeing the church um, expand and, and in my brokenness, but point to the scriptures. And so I did college ministry for a couple of years, and we planted a church 30 minutes um, up the road from um, the, the original church in a college town. So I was the lead pastor there for almost five years uh, before God called us here to Denver, and now we're here. So it's a little bit of my background. But like we said, we didn't come here to talk about Derek. We came here to talk about Jesus. Uh, but I want to share all that with you because, you know, I have to talk at you. So you can force your story on me later, okay? Um, all right. So let's jump back in to Romans uh, chapter 4. And I really am pumped to open the door back up to this series uh, that we've been trekking through. So if you are new over the last few weeks, we are so thankful that you're here. Um, and I, I don't know about you, but that I Am series was absolutely life-changing for me. And I, and I know you're thankful for the Word of God that's preached from the stage week in and week out faithfully, but God was just doing something special in my heart uh, while being here. So, but we really are pumped to go back into Romans. We'll be trekking through this for the majority of the year. And I want to catch you up for those of you who have not been here to kind of remind you or tell you what it is that we've been talking about. And for those of us who were here through all those months um, to kind of connect the jumper cables, if you will, back to our hearts and our minds. Because if we just jump into chapter four, I mean, Brian just read it, it's dense, right? And we're going to get suffocated by the density of this text if we don't understand the argument that has been unfolding up until this point. And so because really chapter four is an illustration that Paul is winding third base, going into home on the argument that he's been making in chapters one, two, 
and 3. So let me just take a snapshot of those three chapters. And so how in the world can I summarize chapters 1 through 3 of Romans in three minutes or less? But I'm going to try. And I'm going to do so by painting two um, main plot lines of the story. And we're going to pull these two threads throughout the rest of the talk today. So hang with me, okay? In chapter 1, if you remember, chapter 1, verse 18, Paul is writing through the inspiration of the Spirit, and he says that God's wrath has been revealed against all ungodliness. And that's kind of a heavy thing to just kind of open the gates with. But he's going to, from the end of chapter 1 all the way to the middle of chapter 3, is explain what he means by ungodliness. And why is God's wrath revealed against our ungodliness? And so in chapter 3, he kind of culminates this argument and comes to the conclusion that all have sinned. Because we all have fallen short of the glory of God. And so to make sure that none of us can kind of weasel our way out of that indictment against our condition, he goes back and explains. So in chapter 1, he says that this ungodliness is those irreligious people who are running from God by attempting to break all of God's rules. And they're running from Him. And then in chapter 2, he turns and says, but there's also people, there are religious people who are also running from God, but they're running from God in very subtle ways. They're running from God by trying to keep all the rules. But the essence and the heart of our sin is that we're all running from God. That sin is fundamentally not about what we do or what we don't do. Sin is fundamentally our posture and our heart toward our maker. And that we have turned against him. And that is the good news that God has made us to know him and to find our life in him and to walk with him and to live out our purposes that he has given to us as a free gift of grace. But we know the narrative of the Bible. Maybe you don't know the narrative of the Bible, but the narrative of the Bible says this, that we have believed the lie. That life is found around God rather than in God. It's the essence of our rebellion. And here's what's the irony of it. So if this idea of wrath revealed is a hard thing for you, what else is left? If we turn from the God who is life, what is left other than death? Spiritual, physical, emotional, social, separation. Things are not as they should be. Everything is broken. Everything is now shattered. And God is in His justice and His holiness that we've sinned against Him much punished the sin. But that's not where the story stops, because in chapter 3 it turns. After he gives this indictment for us all, he says in verse three, chapter 3, verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been revealed. The wrath of God has been revealed, but the righteousness of God has been revealed. That there is a way for us to be made right. And it's not, the solution that God puts out in front of us is not for us to try to just turn our head the other direction. And just act like it doesn't exist. And it's not that God's going to turn his head against our sin and act like it doesn't exist. And just accept us based upon some cheap sentimentality. But rather that God himself is going to enter in into human history. In the person of Jesus. And he's going to walk our streets. He's going to feel deeply. He's going to experience the brokenness of this world. But he's going to overcome. He's not going to turn against God. He's not going to turn against neighbor. He's going to fully live toward the Father. And he's going to show us what righteousness looks like in his life. And he's going to crawl up on the cross, listen, and die the death that you deserve to die. He's going to drink up that wrath that's been revealed so it doesn't have to go on you. It's been revealed. That is the righteousness of God. And so here in chapter 4, this is the argument. 
that he's been unpacking for us. And so chapter 4, he's talking to his audience and says, okay, I'm going to pull some case studies for you. So two of the original audience, especially the Jewish Christians, would have looked at these two cats that we see in the scripture, Abraham and David. And these were like the two heroes of their faith. And he's going to use this case study to show um, what it means for us to relate to God. And so as I've already said, this is a difficult text. It's a dense text. There's deep theological things. Um, and I don't think many of us have been asking questions about circumcision this week. There's a lot of times that Brian said circumcision when he read that passage. Um, and I'm, I'm just guessing that that's not something that you've been asking if you remember here. Of like, what's the summit stance? On? I mean, so where, what do we do with this? Right? I mean, what, what, what does it mean for our everyday life? And so here's what I've been praying for you. Uh, before we jump in, I promise we're actually going to get into chapter 4. But all of this stuff is building blocks that we need. Um, I've been praying for two things. That we would be gripped today and set free today by the simplicity of believing in the grace of Jesus. The simplicity of believing the grace of Jesus. And another prayer I'm praying is that we would see the beauty of belonging to the family of Jesus. Because really what this text is about. So in all the things that we could get lost down into the weed, I want us to pull our gaze up and see this is what God's wanting to speak to us today, is that there's a simplicity in believing in just in who he is and what he's done. And there's a beauty in belonging to the people of God. And so I know I'm talking to a myriad of places. I don't know your story. I don't know what you're bringing in today. And if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, if you're skeptical, if you're asking questions, we are so thankful that you're here. And I just know, uh, because I remember when I did not believe this stuff, how complicated it can seem. Or maybe on the other end, how overly simplistic it can seem. And so when I say that it is simple, I do not mean that it's simplistic. But I also want to say take all the noise of all the things, of all the things that we get bogged down in, and I want us to see the essence of what Jesus' claim is for you today. It's, it is very simple. He's made himself known. But I also know that I'm talking to some people that you have placed faith, belief, trust in Jesus, um, but you're tired. I don't know if anybody's tired. Just exhausted in this rat race, performance treadmill, do more, try harder, kind of trying to keep this thing going in you. Or maybe you get really, really bogged down with doubt. Of, is this stuff true? I know that's my story a lot. Maybe you're, you're just crippled by fear. And you're faced with the depth of your inadequacy. And you're faced with the realness of your limitations and you go, I just don't know what this means. I started out so strong, and now somewhere along the line, the simplicity of the beauty of the grace and the family of God has just gotten lost on me. So I'm praying for you that you'd be set free today, and I'm praying that we would have some healing and vulnerability for some of us that are skeptical of this, that the idea of belonging to the family, what you hear about that is like, a sinking pit in your stomach, or maybe a hardness of heart. They're like, I've tried that before, and I've been burnt. Um, I'm praying for healing to see the beauty of what it means to be the church, that you would step in if you're not already. And for those of us who are, that would you be encouraged today by the beauty of the church. And so that's the two points that we're going today, is the simplicity of 
believing in the grace of Jesus and the beauty of belonging to the family of Jesus. And if you're like keeping score at home out there, the first point is a lot longer than the second. Um, and so don't get nervous. We will get out here soon, okay? But first, chapter 1, uh, verse 1 through 3. Let's read this together. Uh, the words will be up on the screen behind me. It says, What then shall we say was gained uh, by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Okay, a couple big words there. He says something like justified. So the conversation that he's having here. And he uses a word like righteous. And this is really the question. Is how can we be, and it's the same word, justified is just a word that means to be declared righteous. So how can we, these guilty sinners, be declared to be right before God? And this is implying that we're not right with God. That there's a gap. We've been talking about that. That we are actually his enemies. So here's what religion steps into that gap and says. You have to try hard. And you have to appease this God. You have to fix this. And that's exactly the context that Paul's speaking into. He's speaking to Jewish Christians that had prided themselves and defined themselves by their outward obedience and their piety and the religion. And he's going to unpack and show them here that something's going on, that you can't fix it. That all of our righteousness is like stapling roses on a rose bush. It looks pretty, but it's not going to live. That fruit that we talked about last week, that if we abide in Jesus, you can't manufacture that. And religion is this effort to look like we're changed without actually being changed. And what he's inviting us into is actually to come clean of that and to say, no, 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 it's not about your effort. There's no religious activity you can do to, to produce life in your dead soul. There's nothing that you can do to appease this God. But instead, a righteousness has been revealed. It's not a righteousness that's achieved. It's a righteousness that has been revealed. So he introduces Abraham. And, and there's an undoing here that comes when you see, and he's going to use Abraham as a case study of this, that you aren't righteous, and you don't really know that you're not righteous until you tried to be righteous. C.S. Lewis said it like this, that no one has really, truly knows how bad they are until they've tried very hard to be good. <laughs> it's when you actually try to put it on yourself, you realize, wait, I'm actually worse than I thought before I got started in this whole thing. And what he's going to say with Abraham today is that um, the pressure is off. And when he says in verse 1 that uh, what was gained by Abraham, this is not a rhetorical question. This is a question that would have actually been asked by actual people. Is because they saw Abraham as the paragon of righteousness and obedience. He was the example. And they were using Abraham to say, look at Abraham. God accepted Abraham because he was an upright guy, because he was righteous. And he made promises to Abraham just because of who he was. And they were using Abraham as a means to justify this, this religious activity. And what Paul's going to say is, I know you've got it twisted. It actually wasn't like that at all. That Abraham was righteous by faith not by his work. And he asks a really provocative question in verse 3. He says, what does the scriptures say? And what I love about this is he's in saying that, you know, when I say that our righteousness has been revealed, I don't mean to imply that this is new. It's not new. 
This has always been the story of God. He's taken them back to the very, very beginning of we see God interacting with man. And we learn that the story of God has always, always been one of grace. Always. Sometimes we can believe that, right? That the Old Testament God was cranky and he had all these rules and people were like had to do all this stuff to make God love them and then insert Jesus and he kind of mellowed God out a little bit and then the New Testament is about grace and we're and what Paul's saying here is like no what does the scripture say the ark of the old testament is leaning in pointing us to Jesus that it's not just a bunch of individual stories but it's one story and it's about Jesus and it's pointing us to our need for Jesus and entering the, the stage for Jesus to come and make it right and to be our righteousness for us. And so we have to, to understand this. We have to understand this word that's in verse 3. It comes up a lot of times. I think, uh, yeah, five times in just six verses. And there's this word that says it's counted. Maybe your translation may say credited. It's the same word. And we have to understand that because he says, okay, so if you're going to be righteous, it's not because you earn it. Abraham didn't earn it. You're going to be righteous because it's gifted to you as a free gift of God's grace to be received by faith. And so he uses this word counting. It's an accounting term. And what a, this word means is to actually to take the value of one thing and place it on another. A couple of silly examples real quick on this. Um, like a lease to own agreement would be that, right? You're making payments on a house and they're counting as your rent. But if you choose to buy, that money is moved, counted to your mortgage. A lease to own agreement. So they were intended for one thing. You move the value of the one thing to the other. Um, another example would be, um, anybody Texas Hold'em people out here? Poker? Can we talk about that in church? Okay. Um, um, aces are wild, right? What does that mean? That the value, that card means something of any value you want it to mean. That the value of one card is placed onto another. That's that idea of counted. That's when God says that Abraham was counted or credited as righteous. That he was not righteous. But there was a value that was applied to him that was outside of himself. He became righteous, not because of something that came up outside of him, but something that came out from the inside of him, rather, something that came from the outside of him as a gift. This is the beauty uh, of this. And so we see this in Abraham's story. So if you don't know Abraham's story, real quick, um, when we find Abraham, he's not an upright dude. He's a guy that's been affected by the fall like everyone else, and he's a pagan farmer in the Middle East, and God moves toward him when he was not searching for God, and he makes a way of grace and says, I want you to be restored to intimacy with me. And he makes Abraham a promise that says, I'm going to bless you, and through you, all the people of the earth will be blessed. Now, you should hear that and say, well, what does that mean? So you don't have any background of what Jews meant. This is a reversal of the fall. Adam and Eve walked with God. They had a place. They were, had the blessing of God, but they chose to rebel. They were scattered from the presence of God, and everything's broken. And now God is entering into Abraham's story. And he says, this is a declaration of restoration. That I'm going to restore everything that was lost by sin. That through you, Abraham, I'm actually going to gather these people. And that I'm going to make a name for myself. You're going to live as my people in my place and know me and enjoy me again. And Abraham would have heard that. And we see after this promise that Abraham still made a lot of bad decisions. That he has a lot of shady things in his past. He doubts God and he's like um, having children to slave girls trying to manufacture this promise. I mean, he has some really dark moments. That Abraham is not the epitome of righteousness. But rather that God moves toward him in grace. That he initiates. 
that he makes a promise that's bigger than Abraham, even to the point that Abraham and his wife were really old and they were not trying to have any kids. And so how is this promise going to be fulfilled? Only by the word of God and the grace of God. So this is, so he says, this is the actual story. This is what it actually looks like to be. So before we transition to this last point, I, I just need to press in a little bit. I'm like, okay, we're made right with God, just like Abraham was made right with God. By grace, through faith, in God's promise, apart from our works. That's the point. But in, in my, I've not been a pastor for long, but in the decade that I've been trying to do this, there's two people, two types of people that I've come across that keeps them from following Jesus. There's two types of things that keeps you from following Jesus, or maybe you're in following Jesus, but it just sucks the life out of your joy. And it's the people that think that you have to earn God's love, and you're tired, and you're wondering if you can ever do enough. And then there's the second type of people. It's the people that think that they've done way too much to actually be loved by God. That I've, I'm way too unrighteous for God to ever move toward me. And the rest of this passage is really going to unpack that for you. He's going to address specifically to you. So for you who think that you have to earn the righteousness and the love of God toward you, hear what God has to say to you. Salvation is not a paycheck. It's a gift. Will you receive that? I know that's really basic and simple, but will you believe that statement? Because he says in verse 4, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. And so, he, so he's using an illustration. So let's just take Paul's words and apply it to stuff that we would understand. There's two ways to get money in your bank account. Through your job, that you've earned the money, right? So your employer will wire in your paycheck into your account, or somebody can give you money as a gift. And it also goes into your paycheck. So this is the world I'm living in. Right now, uh, my son has food. <laughs> we have food on our table because, because of, two, of two income streams that I have in my life right now. One is I work for a nonprofit doing like content strategy and writing. Uh, so it's my job, right? Part-time. And so that also have the generous donations of people. So like Brian was talking about churches and individuals who said they just want to invest in us to see this church thing get started. Uh, gifts. I didn't earn it, didn't work for it. They just are investing and believing in us uh, because they just want to. There's no entitlement there. Um, the nonprofit, I have yet to get a paycheck from, and I've worked there for, since January. You're like, dude, you're volunteering, bro. That's not a job. Um, but there, there, there's some uh, issues with my W-9. We're chasing it. But you better believe I'm chasing it, right? Because I got to get my money. Daddy got to get paid. Um, but I have a sense of oughtness. Like, you owe me this. I've earned it. Where's the money, right? Like, I've earned this. But when somebody gives you a gift that is more out of an overflow of who they are than who you are, from what they want to do rather than what you want to do, there's a sense of gratitude that wells up. There's not a sense of entitlement there. And Paul's saying that's what it's like with your relationship with God. It's not the paycheck that you earn. It's a gift that gives. And he loved, his love for you, listen, is more defined by who he is than who you are. His love for you is more defined by his work than your work. And you just need to hear that the pressure is off. But then the second group of people that would say... <laughs> I've done too much for God to love me. I hear what you're saying, Derek. It's about grace, and it's not about what we do, but you don't know what I've done. 
And so I think that's why he inserts David into this story. Because David uh, was another hero of their faith, but David, David really, really blew it. I don't know if you know his story, if you're familiar with his story, but again, God moved toward him in grace when he was not looking for God. He was, in everybody else's mind, weak, little shepherd boy, nothing that God, that, that in David that would want God to love him. And he said, I'm going to make you king of my people. I'm going to use you in great ways. And God did do those things. It, was all, it all started with grace. But you know what happened with David? David blew it. When he should have been fulfilling his purpose, he was actually staying back from the war. And he saw this girl named Bathsheba and desired her, had used it in a really shady use of power, used his power to have his way with her. Then he finds out that the consequences of, his, of that behavior, that she was pregnant, while her husband was out in, in battle, and he has another use of power, has her husband killed. And then he lies and covers it up. Like That's not like, you know, Pastor 101 qualifications, right? Like, that's really, really bad. He said, Derek, I've done worse than that. Like, that, that sounds kind of G-rated compared to the life that I lived, and maybe that's true. Um, matter of fact, that's what's true of all of our sin, really, in, in essence. But David was the guy that blew it. And then Paul in verse 6 in Romans chapter 4 quotes David, that we read it earlier during our, our liturgy here in our worship gathering, in Psalm 32. This is a meditation from David on the heels of that train wreck. The smoke is still billowing up from the mistakes that he's made and the aftermath of the, of the mayhem of all of this. And he writes this. He, David speaks of the blessing to who God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count sin. The story just keeps getting better and better. This gospel, the simplicity of the gospel. I know this is very complex arguments, but it's simple. That not only are you right with God, not because of what you do, but because of what Jesus has done, his righteousness as a gift. But listen, all of the unrighteousness that you bring to the table. We can't earn righteousness, but you know what we have earned? Our sin, our death. The Bible says that the wages of our sin is death. And that's the situation. And so instead of God punishing you for your sin, he said Jesus became our sin. That our sin was counted or credited to Jesus. And Jesus was treated as a sinner so that we wouldn't have to be. So that he could look at us and forgive us. He could look at us and say, I'm going to wash you clean. So that our sin on Jesus, then his righteousness on us as a gift. That is the good news, the beauty of uh, the gospel. And so I'm just praying that some of you will receive that forgiveness. You have not done too much. Listen, God is not surprised by your mess. He knew you when you were at your worst. That while you were still a sinner, the Bible says, that Christ died for you. And he's offering forgiveness. You don't have to try to have guilt and shame and beat yourself up and have the self-hatred anymore that he wants to remove that and forgive you. Not because he's just going to sweep it under the rug and forget about it, but because Jesus has dealt with it fully and it is finished. It's finished. So you can have righteousness as a gift and you can have forgiveness as a free gift. It's all by work. It really is that simple. I don't know where it's gotten confused maybe in your mind from your experience with church and you read passages like this, like, well, it's just so complex. I don't it's simple that Jesus is for you. He's not against you. And the way that we can be made right with God is by grace, not by our effort. It's good news. But then the second thing, and I promise very, very quick, is the beauty of belonging to the family of Jesus. 
So we won't even read the rest of this passage for the sake of time. Um, and I really don't want to read circumcision over and over again either. Um, but let me just summarize it for you, okay? Um, these people had began to identify themselves by two things. Circumcision, which was an outward symbol uh, that they were cut off from sin. And they were the distinct people of God. And they began to pride themselves. They got to give Abraham that as a tool to say, this is something that says, set you apart. So you are a people of God. You belong to the family. But they had twisted it and said, no, 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 this is how we're going to define ourselves now. So people who aren't circumcised aren't in. We're the in, they're the out. Be like us. And they also define themselves by the law. So you can use that in verse 13 and say that the law was what they defined themselves by, that we are the ones that are obeying God and we and the people that don't have the law or are obeying like us are out. So they set themselves up. So this is, this is always the case. When you begin to see that your vertical relationship with God is off, when you begin to think that you've earned your relationship with God and that you are somehow more holy and set apart because of what you're doing, then you know what begins to happen is it affects your horizontal relationships as well. That you begin to ostracize yourself from the people of God and you begin to create an us versus them. We're the good guys, they're the bad guys because they're not like us. And so many, is that our experience with organized religion in so many parts of the world? That was so many things that I was rebelling against. And I want us to see is the beauty of what God has formed me, that when he's done this work to save us, he wasn't just after saving you as an individual. He was wanting to save an us, to form a people, a family. That it is about you and God, but it's also about he saves you into the belonging to a diverse people. It's always been God's plan. It's to gather people from every people of the world to be gathered around Jesus and worshiping and adoring and loving Jesus. And our life outside of that flowing out of gratitude because of this gift of righteousness that he's given us and the forgiveness of our sins. That we are united by faith. Not by personality, not by background, not by culture, but by faith. That we are the people who said we've experienced the grace of God. That we're not the people that have it all together. That God has moved toward us in kindness and we believe Him. We trust Him. That He is who He says He is. That He'll do what He said He will do. And they had missed that. They had twisted it. And I know sometimes this is maybe what happens um, in you. You want to twist it. That's what they had done. Here's the argument. Abraham was made right with God decades before circumcision was given. And he was made right with God generations before the law was given. So these two things they were identifying themselves by, he said, listen, that had nothing to do with Abraham's relationship with God. It came after the promise. And so here's what what I'm I'm praying for us today. This is how how I think we can get bogged down so often. As you see people who are growing and who are obeying and following Jesus, and maybe you're here and you're just getting started in this, or you're skeptical about entering into a relationship with Jesus. You're like, I'm not that. I don't want to be that. I can't be that. And you're rebelling against what you've seen. And maybe they're actually pursuing the right things. But get this. That is an overflow of the promise of God in their life. It's not an issue of them working harder and manufacturing that in themselves. So here's how it goes. God is gracious. He makes promises to us. Then we obey. Then we're defined by this outward activity. But what they were doing and what we tend to do is just just flip it and say, no, it's about our obedience. And our obedience is what 
allows us to receive God's promise. And when we actually believe God's promise, then God is gracious to us. And that's just not true. It's, all, it's always been about faith. It's always been about grace. And let's not ostracize other people who are in journey with that. And so let's, this is the point that Paul's trying to make. And I, I have so much more uh, I could say. But here's how I want to end, is that we could come to the beauty that you are caught up in God's story that he's been doing throughout history. That you belong to the people of God. That this is something that he had dreamt of, that he promised Abraham, that we are the offspring that he promised. That we are part of the family because Jesus came through Abraham's line and his lineage. And now we are faith in Jesus, say, we're in. We're not in because we obey. We're in because we believe Jesus. That's the whole point of what he's saying. And it's beautiful. Step in, lean into that. And so I have three minutes. So I have three more, three things as, as a way of uh, a minute each, okay, of what I'm praying for you after all this. So, okay, so what, Derek? So what? So what? All right. Well, this last two verses is beautiful. It says, this is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace, verse 16, and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to the ones who shares the faith of Abraham in the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. So I'll make three statements to you that I'm praying as we enter into a response that this is, would be what we would lean into. First, the simplicity and the beauty of the gospel frees us from trying to prove ourselves. And it allows us the freedom of self-forgetfulness. Can Abraham boast, he says? No. Can we boast in this? No. And when you see Jesus clearly, you see yourself clearly, this obsession that we have to be something and do something, and it's all about us, that we're free from that. There's a humility to say, not thinking of yourself, um, thinking less of yourself, but to think of yourself less, to forget yourself, and to remember who Jesus is, but trust in Jesus and Jesus alone. Will you believe him today? The second statement I would make, and I'm praying for you. The simplicity and beauty of the gospel is an invitation out of fear of never being enough. And it allows us to rest confidently in grace. That's what He says in that, that verse that we just read that this promise rests on grace. And we have confidence. You know why? Because if your relationship with God was about what you are supposed to do, you never can rest. How much is enough? But when it's all about grace and rest and trust in the promise that God has made toward you, you can rest because it's finished. It's not based upon you. It wasn't something you earned, so it's not something you can lose. Rest. Have confidence in Jesus. And here's the last thing. The simplicity and beauty of the gospel is not cheap sentimentality, but it is unwavering trust in the midst of doubt. So some of you hear this and um, you say, Derek, I, I just don't know that I could ever have this faith in Jesus, go all in like you're talking about, to sit down in Jesus for me. And listen, faith does not mean that you don't doubt. Faith is saying, I'm choosing to trust in the midst of my doubt. That it's not about how much faith that I have, the amount of my faith. It's in the object of my faith. That I'm choosing to look like Abraham was and say, I see God. And I believe his promises. That he says he loves me, I trust him. If he says he's for me, I trust him. If he says that he's done for me what I can't do for myself, I trust him. 
And I don't have all the answers, and I don't believe it sometimes, and I know my depth of inadequacy, but I'm going to jump. And I'm going to trust that he's going to catch me. So I'm praying for that, that if your faith is weak, that you would be encouraged. So this is the quote, and we're going to pray. Your faith will not fail while God sustains it. You are not strong enough to fall away when God has resolved to hold you. He's more committed to you than you'll ever be to him. Trust him. And when you can't and when you don't, he's got a hold of you. And we're doing this together. We're stumbling forward together in faith. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you, in all of my uh, rambling, in all of my... um, trying to walk us through this passage. Lord, take my weakness and would you be strong for us? Spirit of God, would you produce faith in this place? Give us the gift of faith. Help us to see you clearly for who you are, for who we are, and what you've done for us as a gift. I pray that the pressure would just come off. I pray that the chains would fall of trying to earn it, that we would rest that you've given it to us, that we would have confidence in you that you would infuse our faith for my friends here that don't know you personally. I pray that they would take a step of obedience even now to begin this journey of faith together. I pray you help us to cultivate this life uh, with one another as the family of God that you have been orchestrating throughout human history. Lord, we trust you now as we sing our soul to you, Lord, that you would be pleased and you would see us coming in our brokenness as your kids, falling in your arms, trusting that you're going to catch us, trusting that you have a hold of us. So I pray as we confess our doubt and we rest in your grace that, Lord, um, you would make us like you. In Jesus' name, amen.